Well, it is Lent, but I, I have to confess that I'm, a, a hallelujah might have just slipped out a little bit. Uh, maybe, maybe just a little bit. Well, we need to remember as we come to this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we need to remember that all of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament address specific pastoral issues, either for congregations or for individuals. That's the case here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The church in Corinth was dealing with specific questions on, listen, how to live for Jesus in their city in their time of the first century. And so Paul says, well, let's look at the scriptures. Here's what God has already revealed. Now, here is the direct application from the scriptures to your pastoral concern. And that's what frequently happens from this pulpit. At least I hope that it does. And that's certainly what we're going to attempt to do today. There, there is a direct application based on the authority of Scripture and the apostolic tradition, apostolic witness from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we heard this morning to our lives today. Now, to, to get there, we need to know a little bit of the background of this passage. In chapter 8, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul begins to respond to a question that the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, have written to him, asking him some specific questions, and this one in particular is, is it acceptable? Here's their question. Is it acceptable for a Christian to eat meat sacrificed to an idol? Can a Christian eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? Now, I know what you may be thinking. How could this possibly be relevant to me living in North America in 2022? Well, hold on. You may be surprised. But why this question in particular? Well, they asked Paul this because, listen, it was a, eating, eating meat sacrificed to idols. It was a normal social activity for people. It was a normal social activity for people, uh, particularly people of means, to have banquets, to celebrate banquets in temples of idols. In fact, many of those temples function in one place, part as an as a area for worship, and in the other part, it was a, basically a restaurant. And the meat that was sold in the marketplace was often meat that had been sacrificed in one of those temples. So you see, typically, on a, uh, only a symbolic portion, only a little bit of the animal was burnt up in the sacrifice. Another portion was given to the priest or the priestess, but the rest of the sacrifice would have been consumed. The remainder of the sacrifice would have been consumed at a feast in honor of the God by the person offering that meal or offering that sacrifice. So if somebody had, uh, if you were having a birthday, you typically would have had a sacrifice and probably had your birthday party right there in the temple. If you had been, if you had recovered from an illness, you would have probably gone to the temple, sacrificed uh, uh, sacrifice to like Asclepius, and and then eaten a meal there in honor of him and in honor of your recovery from your disease there in the temple. Or if just about every wedding, nearly every wedding would have been accompanied by a sacrifice to a pagan deity, and the meat from that sacrifice would have been part of the wedding feast. We even have surviving papyri, papyri, little, little pieces of paper made out of papyrus, invitations to feasts uh, honoring pagan idols and these meals. One of them reads... Um, 
Antonius, the son of Ptolemaeus, invites you to dine with him at the table of our Lord Serapis. We have another papyrus fragment that reads, Hiraeus asks you to dine in the room of the Serapion at a banquet of the Lord Serapis tomorrow the 11th from the ninth hour, from the ninth hour. But here is the difficulty, ready? Here's the difficulty in the Hellenistic world, so the Greco-Roman world of the first century, if you can't eat meat, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul? Well, here's the difficulty. If you cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols, it is really going to be difficult for you because it's going to impact your social network. If you cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols, it is going to impact your social network. Your public and professional networking require your attendance at these meals. Your pagan friend invites you to celebrate her daughter's wedding in a pagan temple followed by a feast using meat from the sacrifice. But as a Christian, do you, uh, can you do this? You have to ask yourself, um, do I compromise my allegiance to King Jesus and risk alienating my friend? Do I compromise my allegiance to King Jesus in order to be with my friend or do do I stay loyal to Jesus and alienate my friend? You risk social ostracism. You risk being able to participate in the marketplace and make a living because so much of business and commerce was based on relationships in the ancient world. Beloved, there was a time when Amazon did not exist. There really was. Or perhaps a family member, a family member is inviting you to such a feast that will involve food sacrificed to idols, you risk rupturing that family tie by refusing to dine with them and share in what they see, listen, what they see as a perfectly acceptable, benign, and even joyful practice. It's acceptable. It's harmless. It's joyful. It's praiseworthy. Why won't you do that? Here's the pastoral situation that arises. In Corinth, there were, in fact, recent Christian converts who did have, who did have a, a measure of social standing, some measure of wealth and prestige. Here's how they were processing this quandary. They saw themselves, they saw themselves as the spiritual elite, the enlightened, enlightened the knowledgeable ones, the strong. Seemingly, they were equating the fact that they had received and believed the gospel and that then they had been baptized and then they had received the Lord's Supper as imparting upon them some sort of special knowledge and they boasted of their knowledge. We're knowledgeable. We know things. Their knowledge showed them that there really is nothing at all to idol worship they recognized that the pagan gods were not real. And if they aren't real, then listen, if that's not a real thing in there, if nothing really is going on in there, then there should be no harm in me feasting in their temples. Here's what they thought. Hey, I don't believe that stuff. I don't agree with that stuff. I'm just here to support my friend. I don't see how this is going to damage my relationship with Jesus Christ. I may, even get, uh, I may even get the opportunity to witness right here. I could witness at this banquet. 
And so they have written to Paul, probably expecting his endorsement of their position, asking him if that practice is okay. Here is the essence of their question for Paul. How different and how, do, how different and how distinct do I have to be from the normal and accepted practices of my non-Christian culture if I am a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, to uh, co-opt Andy Crouch's phrase, uh, I'm not saying that you have to be Amish, but you may have to be more Amish than you think you need to be. That's Paul's response. All of a sudden, though, all of a sudden, this ancient problem for, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 sounds a lot more relevant, doesn't it? What are the boundaries we must observe between the Christian community and the surrounding non-Christian culture? It's a relevant question for us today. There is a, there was, listen, then and there is now, there was then and there is now a huge price to pay. Whether you're in Corinth or Winston-Salem, there is a huge price to pay for standing apart. These Corinthians, with their question about idol meat, saw themselves as enlightened Christians with a stake in their wider community. They regarded their more scrupulous, their more scrupulous fundamentalist Christian brothers and sisters who saw eating meat sacrificed to an idol or eating in a pagan temple as defiling and spiritually contaminating, they saw them as being weak and ignorant. Weak and ignorant. I know that because that's what Paul says, they say. We can trace Paul's full argument to how they're going to deal with this whole idol meat problem all the way back to chapter 8. But here's what he says in chapter 10. He says this, listen, Corinthians, go back to the story of Israel. Go back to the story of Israel. Paul says Israel's narrative, Israel's story, is actually our story as followers of Jesus Christ. And so it therefore relates directly to your experience in Corinth. Paul writes this, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brethren, uh, in King James it says, I would not have ye ignorant, brethren. I won't have ye ignorant, brethren. But for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers, who our, who our forefathers. Read yourself into the story, Paul says. Our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea, that they all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as types or as examples to us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. So this is what the apostle is saying to them and to us. He's saying, you think that being baptized and having access to the Lord's table, to the Eucharist, somehow is going to make you immune from God's judgment for compromising with idol worship. But look, Israel itself had a type of baptism. They all went through the water of the Red Sea, didn't they? 
which corresponds with water baptism. They all were baptized into the, into the cloud of God's presence, which is a type of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, they all ate the manna and drank the miraculous water from the rock, which is a type that corresponds with the Lord's Supper. And in spite of all of that, most of them fell under God's judgment, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Here's the point. He's saying what you see, what you see as being normal in your cultural setting, based on history's, uh, Israel's history, Israel's story, what you see as being normal in your cultural setting, God sees as abhorrent. Paul the Apostle is saying that just because you were baptized and just because you come to Holy Communion, it does not mean that you will escape the judgment of God if you walk in disobedience, you your Corinthian Christians. Their example, Paul says, reminds us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Now jump down to verse 14 in that passage. You're in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. So Paul, closed, here's how he closes his argument. They were look, he's given them lots of things to think about, and then he becomes very definitive, very definitive. They wanted the short answer at the beginning, probably, like you did. But he says, no, let me give you all of the background, and here's the definitive word. He says, therefore, beloved, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He uses that flee only one other time in 1 Corinthians. is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. In other words, you can't sit there and reason with it. Don't sit there and stand up under it. Run from it. Run from it. So much to the chagrin of the Corinthian Christians who boasted of their knowledge, Paul says, no, you cannot eat at the table of idols. You cannot participate in practices. You cannot participate in practices that directly contradict the commandment of God. And if you continue, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, here is the reason that we cannot share in these pagan rites and feasts. While there may be nothing to an idol, it may not have any real existence, yet what is being celebrated and honored, honored in in these very normal, everyday, symbolic structures of your non-Christian community is actually demonic. What is being honored in these things that seem very normal and acceptable? I mean, it's normal to go to the temple to have a feast. These things are actually being offered to demons. No, I, There's no existence to idols. No, those, those false gods don't exist, but demons do, Paul says. And you are offering to demons when you do these things. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so we have to ask ourselves right now, this is where it gets very, <laughs> very close to home. Are there idol feasts, listen, are there idol feasts today that enlightened, knowledgeable Christians are being invited to? Does this have any application to us at all? Brothers and sisters, idols have not gone away in our culture. They're just far more subtle. 
But there, but are there non-Christian, are there non-Christian celebrations in our culture? Please listen. Are there non-Christian celebrations in our culture today that seem normal, acceptable, and praiseworthy that you and I cannot participate in? Are there practices that if we were to abstain from them, we would, it would have the same impact on us as avoiding idol meat would in Corinth? Where non-participation, listen, would result in alienating friends, rupturing family ties, and losing your ability to make a living. Yes, there is something like that, and many of you have already experienced it, and if you haven't, you will. And when confronted with this practice, you're going to be tempted to say this. Hey, I don't believe that stuff. I don't agree with it. I'm just here to support my friend. I don't see how this is going to damage my relationship with Jesus Christ. I may even get to witness right here at that feast. And, of course, you probably know where I'm going with this. What, what are you and I to do? And here's where it comes, because remember, Paul is addressing a specific issue, not some abstract theological idea. What, he's dealing with a specific issue practice an issue in the Christian community in Corinth, and it directly applies to specific practices and issues in our culture in Winston-Salem today. What are we going to do when we are asked to go to our friends or our cousins or our daughters' same-sex wedding? Can a follower of Jesus Christ attend a same-sex wedding? This is the modern version of can a Christian eat meat sacrificed to idols. This, why do I say that? Because, listen, this has the same level of import for us as idolatry because the entire biblical story, the entire story of Scripture, begins and ends with a wedding. God brackets human history with a wedding at the beginning and at the end. Since the earliest days of the church, beginning with St. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, the church has referred to marriage as a mystery, as a mystery. And that word gets taken up in the Western church to, say, to mean sacrament, or we might say a sacramental rite. Marriage is a mystery, a sacrament, or a sacramental rite. Marriage points to the deepest, deepest truths about God and his intention for his creation. Here's the point. To strike at the meaning of marriage, please listen. To strike at the meaning of marriage is a rebellion against the creator. Same-sex unions are the direct repudiation of God's creation order of the union of man and woman established in Genesis 1 and 2 and as reaffirmed by our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus answered, Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In fact, the chief metaphor for the union of Jesus Christ and his church is rooted in the male-female union of marriage. 
So much so that at the end of the age, this is what we await. Are you listening? Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Let us rejoice. I told you in the beginning there's a wedding. At the end there's a wedding. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We are so tempted at this point to compromise. But I want you to go back and hear what Paul has to say because we are going to be confronted with this. And you know that verse in verse 13, 1 Corinthians verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The context of that is not the broader context of life in general. Fine, go ahead and apply it there. But he's saying in the context of being tempted to participate in the worship of idols, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that which you can bear, but will with the temptation provide you an escape route so that you can bear up under it. So be wise, brothers and sisters, and prayerful when confronted with these things. God will provide us an escape route. However, you do need to know that sometimes the escape route is martyrdom. Second, and please, this is where I want it. So that's very factual. That's very didactic. That's very catechetical. But there, is, there are deep, emotional, affectional components to this as well. And let me speak to that. You need to remember that that child or that friend or that brother or sister who is inviting you to their same-sex marriage is not your enemy. They are not your enemy. In fact, they are probably inviting you because they esteem you and respect you and want you to share in their joy. That's what's happened to me. They are not your enemy. They are your beloved. They are beloved by God. And as followers of Jesus Christ, though, we know that there is a deeper reality to these practices. The deeper reality is that there is an idol that is demanding our submission and approval and allegiance and, and collaboration. And that idol has a demonic backing. And so if we're ever placed in a situation where, where, we, where the escape route is not available, then with tears in our eyes, knowing that our loyalty to Jesus will be perceived as an insult, it will be perceived as an insult, we have to say, I cannot participate in this activity that our culture says is normal and benign and praiseworthy. I don't want to lose your friendship. I don't want to lose your love. Dear daughter, dear son, friend, co-worker, but there is a greater demand and a higher calling that I dare not lose by going along to get along. I love you. But Jesus died for me. He died to set me free from false gods. Please don't make me choose between, please don't make me choose between you and Jesus. But if you do, 
you need to know I will never stop loving you and caring about you and being there for you if you need me, but you need to know right now I choose Jesus. Little children, keep yourself from idols. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.